Yeah, this is uh, the second time that I've been here uh, speaking about the Psalms, and uh, I'd certainly come back again. You know, there are 150 of them, and uh, I think that there are 150 chapters in any other book in the Bible. Uh, at least the last time I checked. So there are there are a lot of uh, there's lots of material here, isn't there? And uh, so I thought that I would come back to it, and some of it was at. Uh, my failure to come up with uh, with a title and a topic in time for Alexandra, so she she chose this, and I think it was uh, it was good that she did. I'm happy about that. So I want to uh, today not necessarily pick up where I left off the last time, but the last time I spoke to you, it was about Psalm one and two, and I looked at those as something of kind of doorposts into actually the Psalms, and. Uh, I also describe it in some ways as, you know, those three virtues of faith, hope, and love, where love is like a river that runs through the two banks of faith and hope. But having shared that about uh, Psalm 1 and 2, which is about really kind of this personal life of prayer, what it means to live the blessed life, and then this public life of the king, in many respects we kind of pick up uh, where we left off the last time. I realize that some of you actually weren't here for that, but... But I want to look at three psalms today, and interestingly enough, of these three psalms, I'm sure that uh, you've actually heard two of them preached on here at St. John's in the last two years, and the first one is Psalm 22, and the other one is Psalm 23. Uh, Psalm 23 would have been preached on at the family service in the summer, so maybe you didn't hear that. I'm sure you probably heard it preached on. It's obviously the most famous psalm in the Psalter. And, uh, but I wanted to actually look at Psalm 22, 23, and 24, because they provide, I think, something of a not, a, not a trinity of psalms, but a kind of a trilogy of psalms. In many respects, you know, they're not described as going together in the Psalter, because they're not grouped as such. There's nothing that would specifically indicate that. But, you know, as I read through the Psalter, you know, kind of again and again, it just seemed that these... Three were really complementary, and I think instructive of one another, you know, in our life of discipleship in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, there's an easy way to remember these three together if you just think of them in this term, in terms of how they express who God is, how he's revealed himself to us and through these psalms. And in Psalm 22, you can see it as the, the psalm of the Savior. And the second one, you know, it's the psalm of the... Uh, 24, sorry, 23, the Psalm of the Shepherd, right? And Psalm 24, you probably don't know as well. Those first two, you probably do, 22 and 23, but not 24 as much. But if you're going to play with the letter S in alliteration, it would be the Psalm of the Sovereign, of the King. And I think it's really important that uh, many of us actually like the idea of, you know, the Lord is our shepherd. You know, for instance, if I, you know, if I get to men, I do go into a hospital and visit someone. I actually used to ask people, and sometimes I do occasionally now, but not as often as I used to. You know, can I read you some scripture? And if so, what would you like me to read for you? And often people will say Psalm 23. You know, or if I ask them the question, you know, when I'm caring for them, what kind of uh, attribute of God or, or, or image of God as it were that comes to your mind 
that makes the most uh, difference to you right now in your condition. You know, people will often say, that the Lord is my shepherd. You know, I see him as, as my shepherd, the one who's bringing comfort to me. And so I think it's, it's really easy to gravitate right towards that uh, identity of our, of our Lord, him as being our shepherd. But I want to kind of suggest that might be just a little bit too quick. Uh, I, I want him to, to be known to us as our shepherd, but he also needs to be known to us. We need to know that he's our savior. And we also need to be aware that he's our sovereign, he's our king as well. So that's a little bit why I want to I want to hold these 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 three actually together. Jesus is our Savior, He's our Shepherd, we know, but also our Lord, our, our Sovereign, our King. And so I'll make some kind of preliminary comments about all three of these psalms. You have a handout, you also have the Bible, and then I'll just do some exposition of the psalm as well. Maybe we'll get through to the end uh, because Psalm 22 is long. It's not the longest, but it's 31 verses, and. Uh, and Psalm 23 seems like it's longer than it is. Now, without looking at your Bibles, uh, just think for a minute how many verses Psalm 23 has. You don't have to share that out loud, and I'll tell you that it only actually has six verses to it. It's quite incredible. And then uh, we'll get to Psalm 24, which uh, is kind of halfway in between the two. So let's uh, let's let's do that. And uh, so here we have. Uh, starting with Psalm 22, just some, some preliminary comments, and you can follow along on your outline if you want. And I want to raise a question to start with, which is, which is what are the Psalms? And I know that that seems like a, you know, an obvious question. It's like asking the obvious. Sometimes one states the obvious, but one needs to do that. And, and the Psalms are prayers, aren't they? And, uh, but, but are, are they, are they more than that? Uh, do the Psalms, uh, function in other ways. Uh, do they teach theology? And I think that we would say, yes, they do, don't they? The Psalms, they are telling us, revealing to us who God is uh, through this, this prayer that's prayed by the psalmist. Uh, do, do these Psalms uh, suggest something for liturgy in terms of our life of, of worship? And uh, maybe they don't lay out patterns for us. They're not prescribing that necessarily. But, but, but sometimes, and we all we know that these these psalms are actually used in the context of our worship and, and liturgy, aren't they? Remember, once I used Psalm 95, which for those familiar with morning prayer, it's called the Venite and is uh, you know prescribed to be said every time you say morning prayer. And it actually has a pattern in it that's really lays out a great order for worship. And uh, but but the psalms aren't actually prescribing that. <laughs> Even though they they can they can be prayed like that, um, so I just kind of start with 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 that question, and and the answer that we know is that the Psalms are are these prayers, and they are prayers that are to be prayed. And our tradition, I think, does really well in the use of these Psalms. We know that these Psalms are in our own in our own prayer book, and the Psalms in our prayer book are actually in the same place that they are in the Bible. They're right in the middle, and they're really easy just to crack the thing open. And there you find the Psalms. You're right in the life of the Psalms. And uh, it's great if you know your prayer book from beginning to end, start to finish, and uh, where it goes. And it actually takes you over the life of, of a Christian discipleship in terms of uh, personal and corporate worship and then other aspects of our life from, from baptism all the way to, to death and, uh, and additional creeds and then uh, 39 articles uh, as we come to the end of that as well. But... Uh, 
But our, our tradition does really well with the Psalms right in the center as opposed to some other uh, books that will place it actually at the end. And you could say, well, it's easy to find at the end as well, but sometimes putting it at the end means, well, we can just maybe just leave it there. But there are a number of ways in which the Psalms are prescribed to be used in our tradition too. And uh, they can be used on a daily use, right? We also know that the Psalms are always read for our for communion. And then anytime we have morning or evening prayer, they're, they're used as well. So they're always actually used, prescribed, for any time that we have corporate congregational public worship. And that leads me uh, to the next point in your outline, which has to do with the, with the public use of psalms uh, or congregational use in terms of teaching us, instructing us, leading us in our life of, our life of prayer. Right? I think that prayer is it's learned congregationally. Uh, these prayers in the Psalms are revealed to us in Scripture, and so we do learn by reading them on our own. But it strikes me that it takes us to another dimension, uh, even greater depth, as it were, and destination. When we, when we pray these prayers publicly with one another, as, as Alexander was saying, in terms of being with someone, you might be there that day of worship because of the person actually next to you. And just praying those prayers out loud, I think that brings, uh, brings that point to bear on our life. And so we pray these prayers. We learn these prayers. We learn actually how to pray when we do so congregationally and with others. And so these are, these are community prayers. But it's not just any kind of community, is it? I mean, think for yourself just a minute, all the maybe communities or sub-communities that you're in and the purposes they have, uh, the impact that they might have, and even the intent on your life. But this, this community is like no other community, is it? It, uh, it's a, it is a covenantal community. So these psalms are covenantal prayers. They're the prayers of God's covenant people. And, uh, and, and what, is, what does that mean? I mean, that's not a word that we use very much in our kind of everyday life, is it? This idea of covenant. In fact, I can only think of one time over the last 20 years outside of the church that I've heard that word covenant used. It was when I moved to Ladner and I wanted to remove a tree. And can you believe it? There was a covenant on my tree. <laughs> it's really peculiar. I just was shocked. And... Uh, and I had to get, you know, a document signed that said that I could remove that tree from my property. Well, anyway, uh, and all jokes aside, seriousness, I mean, we are, we are a covenant people that takes it, you know, this life of prayer in the Psalms to a different level. And we know the covenant that was struck with Noah and then Abraham and then, uh, and then Moses. And there's a Davidic covenant as well. And they all have their promises to them, don't they? And they have the signs that go with them as well. I use this idea of covenant uh, in my first teaching with our candidates who are being baptized. We're having two that are being baptized today. And uh, I start right there at that point of, what, of the fact that we actually belong to God. God makes his promises to us and by virtue that respond to him in obedience and him calling and commanding us to be baptized. And we belong to to the Lord through that he's because he struck this covenant with us so it's not us striking this covenant with him and us initiating that he's the one who initiates the covenant with us makes the promise to us and then we respond to him in that and so these are 
prayers of this covenant people. It's really important to bear that in mind when we think about these prayers. But uh, there's something called a superscript in Psalms. And it's a line that isn't uh, given a verse at the top of the prayers, not all of them, but, but many of them that give us some kind of indication of this, of the psalm, uh, who it's for, the occasion that it was intended, and sometimes who wrote it. And that's certainly the case for our first one, Psalm 22, right? If you look at it, you'll see that it says, to the choir master according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. So we know who's written it. That's the last phrase. And the first one is to the choir master, isn't it? And so um, just kind of a word about this choir master. This word for choir master would have been been the same word that actually used for someone who was constructing a building. So this choir master and this person who constructs the building, actually what it's saying is the director or the overseer of the, in this case, the reading of the Psalms in congregational life. But in the other case, overseeing the building of some kind of structure, a director. This is the person who's directing, as it were, the congregation as they're gathered to pray this psalm and to uh, to be praying to together. And uh, that just lends itself to saying, look, these psalms are for congregational prayer and worship. And, uh, so not only not only personal, but but for public. But of course, they are for personal, aren't they? It's not to say that prayer isn't personal. It is deeply personal, and these prayers are very expressive of, of the, uh, the psalmist's prayer to the Lord and how uh, the Lord has revealed himself to him and the pleas and the petitions and the aspirations of that, that prayer personally as well. And so it throws us actually into the story of that prayer's life in many respects. Uh, they're not kind of storyless Prayers, storyless kind of poetry. You know, sometimes poets can write poems that have nothing to kind of do with any kind of particular situation that they've they've experienced. And uh, and many of these prayers, we don't actually know what the background or the context of them. But some of them, some of them we do. And this one in particular, we don't. Psalm 22, but it actually takes us to another place. I think when we read it. This psalm, probably above all the psalms in the Psalter, is the one that uh, that points uh, most explicitly to the death of our our Savior, to the the cross of Jesus Christ. All of the psalms point to Jesus. I think it's important that we know that they always express who God is to us and point us to to Jesus. Even when you read Psalm Psalm one, where it says, "Blessed is the man who," and then it goes through the ways in which we can anticipate that a person would be blessed, right? We automatically, I think, or I don't know about you, but I automatically thought, oh, this is talking about me. If I want to live the blessed life, this is what it really is going to look like. So this is what I'm going to do. But really, that description can ultimately be only described as, as Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills that because I don't always do that. But he is the one who always did and uh, and does. So... Um, so these, these prayers are, they're intensely personal. And we sometimes say when we're reading them, don't we, that I've felt that, right, when we read through that psalm, or, or I've thought that. We may not always say, I, I don't think that we can always say, yeah, I've experienced that. and Because there's some descriptions even in Psalm 22 today that we could say, yeah, I've, I've never experienced specifically that. Um, but they're, they're, they're expressive of, 
the psalmist's uh, relationship of the Lord and what they're experiencing uh, in, in, in this case, and then giving giving uh, voice to that in terms of prayer. I think it's also important to point out, in sense of them being intensely personal as well, you know, because often it is actually in the first person, the I. Sometimes it's corporate we, and sometimes uh, the word you, the second person, personal or plural, might be used. But uh, but what I love about the Psalms is uh, they are. I do. I think there's a shocking element to them. They kind of arrest us as we read through them together and 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 on our own. And uh, one of the things that you know theologians like to do is categorize these psalms you know so one of the categories is not shocking <laughs> but you know there are there are royal psalms there are praise psalms or thanksgiving psalms uh and they're they're sometimes organized in those and other terms uh and that's and that's helpful because you want to learn how to pray by praying these psalms and know where to go to find them and, uh, and to understand them, integrate them in your life. But they don't always fit that neatly and easily into, uh, into a category. So, especially when you look at, the, look at the detail of them. And I just want to say this before now we actually look at Psalm 22. And that is, I know in our culture we've heard that the devil is in the detail. And uh, most of us have probably even said or thought that at one point in time. But it's really important to know that the Lord is the one who's actually in the detail. And uh, the devil is the one who likes to generalize and condemn. And uh, it's not the Lord who comes to condemn, but to save. And he's into the details of our life. And, uh, and we can take comfort, I think, in that. So uh, let's look at the details of Psalm 22. And uh, again, to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, that's really puzzling. It's a tune, Right. And it just really has a kind of a, a nice kind of comforting, almost kind of a soft feeling to it, doesn't it? And uh, and then you read the psalm. It's not like that at all. And uh, but we don't know the tune, do we? We just know what the probably the name of it was and that it was, in fact, written by David. So let's just let's just look at this. Um I'll try to to spend enough time with it, but also get through it so that we can get to the others as well. So uh, I think I'll I'll read it out loud first, and then we'll then we'll go through it piece by piece. It's long, Psalm uh, twenty to thirty one verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy and thrown on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me. 
Many bulls encompassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan surrounded me. They opened wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you and you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. And from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations and all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people's yet unborn that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, this is a this is a great uh, a great psalm, and I'm happy that I haven't put four psalms together. Though we read Psalm 25 this morning, didn't we? At uh, uh, the 7:30 service, and they'll have read it at the other ones as well. So it's kind of great that we have these three psalms, starting with this one. And right from the beginning, you know, we see that this is about God's saving grace, isn't it? Right there in the first verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? This is about uh, being saved. And we're immediately impacted, aren't we, by David, this prayer of the psalmist and just this, this desperation of his as he says, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He he kind of raises this question that I don't know why it is, but you know, but in the church we think that the people who don't ask why are the ones who are the most mature. Right? Oh he would never ask why. Right? And and I read this and I and, I, and sometimes I do I do say to people when I visit them, because I do hear that, and I try to do, be gentle about this. I think I can. At this stage of my life, I realize that that uh, I can use my what perceives to be gentleness with people when it comes to things like this, and, and and just kind of point out, you know, they know that David asked why, and our Lord from the cross asked the question, the question why, 
And uh, and so David is is in desperation here. He is just longing to be saved. But but you know the great thing about this, isn't it? Right, right. That he's addressing he's addressing God, and not in generic terms necessarily. Some other person's God that he's coming to, but he's acknowledging that you are my God. Who else am I to go to under these circumstances but but you? Maybe someone else has something to say say to me, uh, but there's no one else who can save me, no one else who can give uh, a response to my my answer here but you. And so he addresses this to his God. It's it's directly to him. And and the desperation is 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 bad. I mean, some of us know this, and this is just general without getting into the details yet of the rest of the psalm. But but right. Right. He is he is utterly groaning, right? Which kind of takes us to Romans when Paul talks about, I think, the spirit who groans within us. Well, here here David is. He's he's groaning. He's crying. He longs for an answer, which he's not actually hearing. And he's doing this. How often? Well, presumably uh, by day and by night. Well, not presumably. That's what it says. By day, he's doing it and by night. And he's finding no rest whatsoever. So in desperation, though, he's headed in the right direction, right? He's in uh, in the presence. He's he's or, or at least he's uh, he's offering this this psalm, this this question to God. So that's his desperation. And those are the words that are that are spoken by our Lord from the cross as well. So immediately this points us right to to Jesus right from the beginning. And then he makes this declaration, which is interesting. I don't know about you when you're feeling like you're in desperation uh, and you address the Lord and you ask the question why or you have another petition that you make. But but look at what he does almost immediately. This is Psalm. And I realize that this could have been this, you know, the psalmist prayer was coming over a period of time. And here we have it all um, synthesized in what in the 31 verses that we have before us. But the next thing he does is he makes this declaration, right? He says this about the Lord, acknowledging God's attributes, almost by way of, and remember, this is covenantal people. He's committed, he's in covenant with the Lord. And so he says, yet you are holy, love the word yet, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and, uh, and this is a declaration of the man who longs to hear from the Lord. And I just think that it's so instructive. Um, one, for, for who the Lord is. And we make <laughs> prayers of declaration as a covenantal people. But also it's, it's, I think, directive. You know, when we feel like we're not getting what we deserve or what we, what we do or, or, what, uh, or what, we, uh, what we like. And it's 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 powerful, isn't it? Just look at the image that David gives here of the praise of Israel to their Lord. See what it says? It says that the Lord is holy and he's enthroned like there's this throne. Right. And, you know, I think of a throne and I think of a king with a a crown on. Right. I also think of. you know, a throne being kind of a, a, you know, a chair, as it were. But I just I think this is incredibly actually affirming of the person who longs to hear from the Lord. Yet he's recognizing that the Lord is actually enthroned on the praises of his people. Think about that when you praise the Lord. I mean, also, we need to think about the one who is on the throne, but never minimize the praise that we offer to our Lord. He is enthroned on the praises uh, of his people, as it's described here. 
And then three times uh, David mentions the word trust. And so he has this desire to trust the Lord under the circumstances because God has shown himself, revealed himself trustworthy in the past. And that's what this is. This is a declaration based on based on the past here. So the fathers trusted, they trusted and God delivered them. And then finally, they trusted and they were not actually put to shame. See kind of what's at stake here for David in this respect. So let's move on from there then. So from declaration, then it actually goes to what I call a dereliction or desolation in these next three verses. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. And I don't know, at first it kind of looks like he's taken two steps forward and now he's taking one step back. I don't, I don't think that that's really what's happening though, right? This is just an honest assessment and observation of the circumstances that he's facing. Also pointing to our Lord and the ones that he did as well because we know that he was mocked. People were obviously... Um, uh, circling around him, as it were, when he was on the cross uh, that, that that Good Friday. So um, you can almost kind of uh, think with along with verse 1 and even in, in verse 8 that it, it looks like David's something of a script writer for our, for our Lord. But, but of course he's not. Jesus knew these psalms through and through. And in his last day of life and those hours of death uh, what was he going to use from from the cross in his in his last words and what was going to reveal actually to the world that yes Jesus was fulfilling as the savior the very words of of scripture and so uh, these two might be David's experience too Uh, someone may have said to him because he puts in quotes He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights on him. These very well may have been expressive of, uh, of David's experience, too. And I think it's important to point out that we know David as a king, don't we? But David was also not only in practice, as we read these psalms, a prophet, but he was identified as a prophet, too. And for Samuel, the spirit of the Lord would come on David and, and, and the author would say that he would prophesy. And then when Peter actually gives his sermon in Jerusalem, he identifies David as a prophet explicitly. So David is uh, is speaking prophetically, pointing actually to something uh, in the future, but that doesn't mean that he isn't experiencing that. And so we move then from this desolation to then to a description in verses 9 to 11. He says, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is no help. And uh, so where before in verses three to five, he was giving reference to the uh, knowledge that uh, the covenantal community in the past had of the Lord. Now he's actually being very specific in making this description a kind of declaration then of his own personally. Uh, he just acknowledges it, that it's the Lord is the one who took uh, him from his mother's womb. He was the one who he learned to trust trust in because of, because of the way he actually came into this world and was looked after. And I think that it's really important for, uh, for those of us who have that 
for lack of better word, privilege, right? To acknowledge God's grace in our life right from the moment we were born and even before that. And how the Lord has looked after us. And uh, and prayer is often that. It's actually looking for the those indications of grace, the grace of God throughout our life. It's It's not to ignore the difficulties, and certainly Psalm 22 does not ignore them. But in the midst of that, we can see this this grace of God. And notice notice this. He's not saying what I hear sometimes, that it could be a lot worse. My life could be like such and such's. Right? I've thought that from time to time as somehow to take kind of consolation in that. But that's not the Psalm of the Covenant people, right? It's not this kind of comparison, oh, uh, life could be a lot worse for me. No, he's actually looking right to the Lord and seeing the way that the Lord has been gracious to him, provided for him, sustained him. That's absolutely, I think, critical in these kinds of circumstances in our life. To take note of what the Lord has done. So, from there, uh, the description continues in verses uh, 12 to 18. Lots of detail in this, aren't we? Uh, I don't have time to go over each detail, but but boy, oh boy, how close it looks to what our Lord uh, was experiencing and uh, David has given expression to on the cross as our Savior. Many bulls compass me. Uh, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. And then he goes into uh, their open mouths like Lauren, ro- sorry, roaring lions. And uh, just the pouring out then of Jesus' life uh, like water. And uh, the bones are out of joint. And this uh, in detail is giving, uh, not in every piece of detail, uh, a point to Jesus' death on the cross. But remember back in, um, I lived in Ann Arbor in 1988, my wife was involved in the Christian Medical and Dental Society. And uh, they published a magazine, I think kind of quarterly. And some of the doctors in the organization decided that they would give some kind of description of what it was like to die on a cross and just from a medical standpoint what that was like and uh, i don't think that we need to read that to appreciate the saving work of our lord and savior jesus christ the scriptures contain all things necessary for salvation but boy uh, but this this just idea of all my bones are out of joint you know is a as far as I can tell, I think that David's speaking prophetically here. This isn't something explicitly that he, uh, you know, they need to be careful, right? That he was the experience. But our Lord on the cross, all his bones were out of joint. Absolutely. And uh, so this is a, this is a d- detailed description right down to the, the end of verse 17 and 18. Though I can count all my bones, though they are out of joint, they stare and gloat over me. Wasn't that uh, what was going on when Jesus died on the cross? And they divided my garments among them. Check fulfillment of that. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Check again. Uh, we don't have anything in the narrative that that was the case for David. But here we are. We're being directed uh, now as we pray this to our to our Savior. It's a cross-like like description. But from there, he goes from description to deliverance, right? Here's this contrast word again. We've had a few of them already and yet, but but you, O Lord, do not be far off. There's this crowd. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. And uh, 
it's 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 this gradual deliverance. Do you, do you see that right? First, it's just it's uh, don't be far off. It's kind of, kind of general, and then it kind of builds. Uh, Come quickly to my aid. You get the sense of urgency from it, and then deliver. Well, what is he being delivered from? That from the sword. Talks about the preciousness of life, and then save me. And here we are again. This psalm about our about our Savior. This is the this is the in some sense the meat of this passage, which has to do with the, the deliverance, which is what he actually wanted. And he sees himself in this community. I think that it's a covenantal community again that is committed to this this deliverance, which comes by the Lord. Okay. Over to uh, over to where am I? Uh, to twenty two, yes. Just kind of uh, I'm closing in this and quickly then, so we can go on to Psalm twenty three. We see uh, his his devotion then after this this description of deliverance, and there are just four parts to this devotion now that has he's kind of committing himself to the Lord. Uh, all the way to the end. And the first one is volition. I'll just look at this. uh, Verse 22, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. This is his volition. He's committing himself to this as a result of of what he knows uh, that the Lord is is going to do for him and that we know that the Lord has actually done for us on the cross. This is his, uh, this is his, his volition, his commitment this is what he'll do. He's not actually bargaining here, right? Like we know that in some times when, when, when we pray, maybe you did this in the past and we know others, you know, God, if you give this to me, I will do this for you. It's kind of, kind of a bargaining, right? And, uh, but only if you do this for me will I actually do this for you. That's not, that's not what David's doing. And uh, that's not for, for us as Christians either. We remain devoted to the Lord no matter what the outcome, because he is our Lord, he is our Savior. And we do make our petitions, and we do have certain kind of aspirations. If we do get what the Lord gives us, we will able, be able to do something that we wouldn't otherwise. But it's not, a kind of, it's not a kind of a bargaining. Before that, he's demonstrating commitment to the Lord in volition. But in verses 25-26, he then makes a vow, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. You could describe this whole section as praise as well as devotion. And then he says, literally, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. He's committing to them no matter what. He's keeping keeping this covenant the Lord has struck with him, and these are his vows. And then he gives this great depiction of a vision in verses 27 to 30. This is not just about him. He realizes that a lot more is at stake. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingships belongs to the Lord and the rulers over all the nations. How comprehensive, actually, this this vision of the reality of the saving work of the Lord. And it finishes with, and it shall be told of the Lord, this is verse 30, to the coming generations. So he's telling forth of this, this, this work of the Lord. And then it ends, actually, what I describe as victory. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. It's pretty powerful. I don't know what you what you think about that. These weren't actually the words that Jesus spoke from the cross, but I think it's instructive this. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, he said, by way of victory, it is finished. Right? He completed what he came to do. I can't remember if I've shared this with you before or not, but you know, 
those words are absolutely kind of astonishing context of the Roman Empire because uh, in a battle uh, of the gladiators, when one defeated the other, he would stand over him and say, it is finished. And uh, what a kind of a twist, what a kind of an inverted, what an upside down. Uh, Here's the one who died, but through his death, the victory was accomplished. It was finished. Resurrected from the dead three days later. Okay, that's Psalm uh, Psalm 22. Let's uh, let's go to Psalm 23, the one that you know much much better. And you know what? We're not going to get through this if I do Psalm 23 and 24. What do you think if I pass over Psalm 23? Is that okay? I'll just I'll just point out some things really kind of quickly about it though, without going through it uh, verse by verse. So. Uh, Psalm 23, as I said, it, you know, it's about the shepherd. If uh, the previous one is about the savior and the cross, this is about the shepherd and let's say his crook or his crozier, right? So if that kind of helps you remember these things, right? Uh, Calvin once uh, referred to the world as a theater of God's glory. And I think that you can say this um, in part about this Psalm too. The, the context is it's, it's in the created, the created world as we think of the shepherd and his work. Uh, in some respects, I think it takes us back uh, to the beginning, not kind of explicitly in terms of those first seven days of creation, but this world in which I think the shepherd was immersed in was was that kind of that kind of world. And it was a, you know, it was a, this world that we live in is a is a is a is a world that God declared was good. We know that sin entered into it and uh, and evil. I think that it's important to kind of note when we think about this psalm, though. And the shepherd, and I just kind of I learned this again the other day as I read through the creation narrative. You know, then when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, the first curse, and we know that in those terms of the fall or the curse, the first curse was actually placed directly on the serpent, right? The next person who's addressed is Eve, and the word curse actually isn't mentioned at all. But we know that there's going to be pain for her in childbearing. But the word curse isn't mentioned. And then curse is used one more time. But it's not actually the man, Adam, who's directly cursed. It's the land that's cursed. I found it really, really helpful. So God doesn't curse Adam and Eve. And that it's the serpent in the land that's, that's actually cursed. And so here we have this shepherd who's looking after the sheep we we love this now, even though i think we know now that it's that it's not meant to actually flatter us is it it's great that we have a shepherd uh, and it's important that we recognize that we're like sheep but sheep are not all that kind of great as it comes to animals some of you chuckling and, and i know that you know that so i won't go into the details of that right but but it's great that we Admit and acknowledge that the Lord is is our shepherd, and that uh, that we sh- that we shall not want. And it's it's in this this theater of this God's glory, this created world that that we have this psalm because the shepherd was there in that created world, ordering things day in and day out, looking after the sheep and looking after them in these world. I think, I think that one of the things that's important to kind of recognize about this too is just the importance of metaphor in our psalms and in our prayers. You know, when we when we pray, uh, how is it that we're praying? How is it the psalms instruct our our prayer life in this? And uh, so God is is depicted 
uh, or or uh, described, maybe that's not right, but at least addressed as God is my rock, right? There's a metaphor. God is my shield. There's another one. God is my light. There's another one. My fortress. It's just kind of endless, isn't it? God has revealed to us as Christians uh, in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in these Psalms, all these kind of metaphors are are used, and they're just close to the earth, physical, they're, uh, they're material, as it were. And so language plays a really, really big role in our, in our prayer life in the Psalms. And so uh, in the Psalms, we have everything uh, in terms of uh, the whole experience of life, right? From pleasure to pain, from wonder to worry, anger to adoration, friends and enemies. See that in this guilt, right? And grace, just madness and mercy. There's depression and at the same time, delight. And uh, that whole kind of range of, uh, of the experience that we're brought and is expressed in the, in the Psalms. So this is uh, Psalm 23. And, uh, and I'm going to pass over that and just go to Psalm 24 now, okay? So Psalm 24 now is about the sovereign. It's about the, the king. And if you need an image to, to think about that, uh, just remember that Psalm 24 is about this, this king who has a crown and the crown of uh, this king is glory. And so just as Calvin said that, uh, that the world is the theater of God's glory, he could have said about this. I'm not suggesting that he did say this, but about this psalm, you know, one could say that, that the world is also the realm of God's glory. So it's quite dramatic, but it's also this this place where the Lord actually rules. And it's important, I think, to come to this point because um, why I think we might like the thought, and I know that we do, that the the Lord is our shepherd. Uh, We we know that that he's our savior. It's really important that we acknowledge that he's our Lord. He's our king. He's the one who rules over our life completely and entirely personally for us. And publicly, this whole this whole world, and so this uh, this psalm has uh, how to describe this for sure, but it's but it's about this story of God's saving work as He shepherds His people, as He rules rules over them. And so, after Psalm one and two, you know, we're immersed into this story of God's saving, shepherding, kind of ruling ruling work. You know, Psalm three that follows immediately after one and two. What's that about? It's about this conflict between David and his son, Absalom. Uh, kind of nice story, right? No, not at all. But through this story, God is actually ruling. We're, we're, we're being instructed, I think, and told, and that he's the one who this saving grace is being worked out in. But uh, it, is, it is a story that's in time and place, and the great thing about the Psalms, I think that they do order our life day in and day out over the course of our life. And so Psalm uh, Psalm three, uh, sorry, Psalm 4 then is a psalm that lends itself well for actually evening prayer. And then Psalm 5 lends itself well for morning prayer. And so we have this story of, of night and day and, uh, and over, over time. And psalms are, are, are why well, we don't always, we don't always don't have an incident or an occasion about them. Uh, we know that they actually come out of this story of God's saving, ruling, uh, reigning work in our life. Okay? 
Psalm 24 is often uh, identified as, as you might guess, as a as a as a kingdom psalm or a, or a royal psalm. And uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that the, that the Lord always intended for His people to have a king? Genesis 17 verse 6, God changes Abraham's name, sorry, Abraham's name to Abraham, and He makes this covenant promise to him, right? And in that covenant promise, He says that they'll be fruitful that they'll be a nation, and that they will actually have kings. But it's later in, in uh, 1 Samuel, right, when uh, Saul is identified as a king, Samuel is really grieved by this, and uh, God says to him, you know, it's not you that they're rejecting, it's actually me. And so God gives them that first king, Saul, who was not a good king, who didn't, like the following King David, have a whole heart after God. You might actually say that, yeah, that Saul had a ha- had no heart for God, and uh, Solomon was just a little bit better than Saul was, and he had kind of maybe half a heart for God. It got started really well. That's not to say that things started and finished really, really well for David either, but that's just to say that this is a royal psalm, and it's one of these psalms that's expressive of of the Lord who actually is our is our king and the one who rules and reigns in our life. So let's just look at this. Uh, lots of points to the first Psalm we look at, but Psalm 24, just uh, three big ones, ABCs, actually ascension, blessing, and then finally, uh, just the confidence that we have in our Lord. So Psalm 24, verse 1 begins with, The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And it goes into creation in verse 2, as you look at that. And then verse 3, he raises this this question, doesn't he? But but we see right from the beginning that the the earth is actually the Lord's. And uh, not only the earth, but everything that's therein and everything, every being that actually dwells in it as well. This king uh, of ours, uh, David, is, uh, is, is giving expression uh, to this. But in this question, he says, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Great kind of question to even kind of ask of ourselves, right? What hill is David speaking of? Is he thinking of Zion, Mount Zion? Is he thinking of Jerusalem? Uh, he raises this question, who shall stand in this holy place? We have no idea if this is before David became king or as he was becoming king or after he had become the king. Is he looking for one to fulfill this uh, other, than, other than himself? But, uh, but he raises this question, this whole idea of, of ascension is being kind of brought to our, our attention right here in the beginning of Psalm 24. And I just... Uh, as I read through this, I just think that it's astonishing, in some sense, the the, the risk you know that, that the Lord, the King, actually took in this world in which we which we live. Because we know that the earth is His and the fullness of every, every kind of being is in it, and uh, just He's the one who's owner of it. But He entrusts this this world, as it were, to us. We're we're stewards of it, and we all know that. I think that uh, there's a difference between. Uh, owning and and renting isn't there <laughs> if you if you can own 
but you know that that if you do own it, you're more likely to take better care of it than if you if you rent. I was I've been in both situations, and uh, and renters just don't tend to take the same kind of care of it that that the owners do. And God, who who can only be the owner, the ruler over all creation, right? Because He's the one who created, right? He entrusts this world to us as as stewards. And uh, in some sense, you could you could say, well, what do you? Well, you know, this is kind of what was to be expected of of us as sin entered in the world, and uh, and we are stewards of of creation that. We're held to those standards and, and, and the standards that, uh, that the Lord has, has set out for us. But, but we can't uh, or we don't take the kind of care of this world which, which, uh, which can be expected. So anyway, uh, let me just come back to this question. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Well, in the end, there's only one and it's the Lord Jesus. He's the one who ascends that hill. He's the one who died on the cross. He's the one who's only holy and stands in that place. So that's the first thing, the ascension. Second part is is the blessing then. Uh, who can, sorry, and the answer to this question is, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, he does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And then continue on with with uh, verse six. So, these three verses in answer to that that question is, well, there is only one, and the one who lives this this blessed life, and this blessed life is described in terms of not only blessing, but also righteousness, who issues in the salvation of the Lord. And uh, but then we're kind of encouraged to pursue this life in verse 6, such is the generation of those who seek him and who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And uh, I just love it that, that we're given qualifications for this blessing and uh, it has to do with, I think, with the hands. Do you see that? Which directs our attention to strength. The heart, which has to do with our desire and our will. The soul, which is mentioned, which... You know, we're created in the image of God. Therein is the likeness of God. But also our speech is expressed here. How we actually use that. And uh, as he uses the word, those who do not negatively swear deceitfully. And these are the, these are the ones that uh, the Lord will bless by his, by his grace. So blessing is the second part of this. And then finally we brought kind of right to what the psalm is, is ultimately about, which is about the king. And so he says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And then he repeats that and makes some changes to it, right? At the second to last line, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. That's what this psalm is about. It's about the sovereign. It's about about the king. And we we need this, we need this in, in our life, not just the Savior and the shepherd, but the one who rules over our life. John Stott uh, said in his book, The Cross of Christ, that, that if God is our Savior, then he is, is our sovereign. And I think it's just really important that we make that, that connection, but this actually uh, makes that connection for us. As we know that, uh, that ultimately we need to, you know, we, we submit ourselves 
to the Savior, who is at the same time our sovereign. And he is absolutely glorious. The word glory is repeated over and over again. And our imaginations, our life, and its totality are just captured by the glory uh, of the Lord. His life, his death, his resurrection. And what this is doing is kind of connecting us to his ascension. And uh, so let me uh, stop there. Please let me stop there. And... uh, And see if you have any have any questions about these uh, about, about these three psalms or other psalms as well, and uh, how we how they they lead us, they school us in in prayer, but not only personally, but uh, but publicly as well. Kurt, um, in, in um, Psalm twenty four, after verse six and verse ten. Yes. What does Selah mean to you? Yeah. Uh, what does Selah mean to me? Uh, well, let me ask you a question. Uh, does it mean something to you? Well, I heard Maxine Hancock say that her mother said to her when she was a little girl, and, and she asked that question. The mother said, "Stop, stop and think." Huh? Huh? I don't think I. Uh, my understanding is that we we don't actually know what it means for sure, and uh, and so there is spec- speculation on it, and so. Some speculate that it does actually mean a pause, right? That you're taught that it would be used in congregational or corporate worship, and at that point there would be there would be a pause. I don't know what would become between the section uh, after it while you were pausing, and you'll notice actually in Psalm 24, Selah is actually at the end of uh, of the psalm. So, you know, maybe in uh, in the synagogue there was something that would be followed after this so that you would pause before you went that too but I haven't really kind of come down I'm not really I'm not really sure what it means uh, so I know I know this probably is a good idea that and you'll notice actually in our prayer book that the say law actually isn't in there so that when we do actually read this congregationally that you don't you don't read the word say law uh, so so sorry, uh, I, I, I'm not. I don't know what it means. I say that like a Hebrew word, or I'm assuming. Yeah, it must be. Oh, yeah. Look up in a dictionary for that. <laughs> this is a like a high poetry attitude type of stuff you're talking about. Hmm. Hmm. Metaphor, something that I read with poetry as this is kind of new all this stuff. Thanks, John. Selah, yeah. You want to weigh in on Selah? I can only report that you are in the majority. Nobody knows. And you will flip the pages of the commentaries and you soon discover. Nobody knows what, uh, for sure, what Selah signifies. But um, I'm sure you're on the right track in saying to us, as you are in effect, uh, this is a point of significance. Stop and think. Mm, mm. And, um, I can see, and surely we all can see, that stopping and thinking about the last thing said before the <coughs> word sila is used mm, mm. does have the effect of uh, uh, an emphasis. Uh, one way or another we are to find emphasis here Mm -hmm. but when I've said that 
when the commentaries have said that, they none of them know exactly what emphasis it is, whether it's the same measure of emphasis um, uh, in each case, or whether, in some way, it is the emphasis of God just coming close and saying, think about this, and see what I give you as you do. And um, I must confess, that's the way of looking at it, which has seemed to me the more attractive to my own thinking right. and the more suggestive of good things, good thoughts to think at the point where Siva is put. But you can see, I'm, I'm, I'm not able to say anything definite for everybody because the bottom line is I, like everyone else I don't rightly know you know, I'm, one of the things I appreciate about that is that uh, often what we can do is just uh, and I confess that I, I do this in the times that I've read through the Psalms um, you, you can tend to go too fast Right, and we tend to not read out loud, uh, which lends itself to racing right through what we read and missing actually what the Lord actually has for us. And it's really important, I think, to you know to read the Psalms. Obviously, we do congregation out loud, but even personally and privately to read them out loud as well. And that's not even just for uh, for the Psalms, but it's for. Um, the rest of the book of the Bible as well. It's really kind of interesting what you'll notice when you read it out loud when you don't. And I kind of, there are aspects of our current culture which I like and dislike, uh, as I'm sure we all do, but you can also, you can also now um, get the Bible that's in audio and have it read, read as well. And I just love listening to it as well because I pick up and hear things that I haven't when I've read through it myself. Which is also why we need to be in the congregation here at Read Out Loud too, and preached on, because you'll hear and learn things that you just cannot by yourself, privately, individually. I noticed a couple of questions. George first, at the back, and then Harvey. Oh well, no, I was only going to comment. I've always, but uh, Dr. Packer has really said it. I've always thought it meant note this. Okay. It may be, and I hadn't thought of it before, it may be connected with this point. I, I, I'd like you to uh, comment on just a simple idea. Bruce Walt, he always moved me. Mm. Uh, bad ideas of disagreements. Bruce Walt. <laughs> no, the song is better than anybody. Yeah, I took he a says, seminar on this. He says, remember, he thinks, he does, he said, I remember precisely he was saying, he didn't understand why, but he's, he, he believed that God likes our passion. Hmm. Hmm. And we, a Psalm 22 is a remembering and a meditation hmm. on passion, hmm. and then hmm. we enter into it. That's uh, is, uh, could you comment on that? On passion. Uh, I think uh, I think passion is important. Uh, and, it, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, this is one of the things that I, I don't know why I've been wrestling with this this recently, right? Because article number one in our 39 articles says that God has no passion or parts. 
uh, which I is always kind of seen. I mean, and that's because I think that God isn't, you know, God isn't caused, or He isn't. I, I need to be careful about this. So he's He's the first cause, right? He's the thing that He's not the thing. He's sorry. He's the one who moves uh, us, right? And and He, you know, insofar as passion is good, it is when God moves our hearts and our souls and our minds and our strength. So I think that. But I think passion is really important when when that's the case. Uh, um, so I, so I do. I think Psalm 122 expresses that, and the passion is direct. I think the passion is clearly directed towards the Lord. Um, obviously, sometimes in the culture we use that that word passion gets used in other ways, and people have passion for a whole range of things, and uh, and it can be mis misdirected. And uh, and not moved at all by the, by the Lord, but when it is moved by the Lord, then it then it's good. And and here's the thing: always in the direction of the Lord, but always always for truth. Right? I think that that's there's a uh, that if we're going to have passion for for anything, or at least if there's an order for passion, that's 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 the direction that it would come in. Uh, and there are some other things that would follow, actually, almost linearly in, in a line from that as well. And uh, but passion, and then truth, and then uh, you might actually put love or service uh, after that, and uh, the love for God, but love for your neighbor as your as yourself. Could those Joe had a question? Joe. Um. I appreciate that you, uh, as soon as you talked about Abraham, you uh, you turned to Samuel. I'd like to sort of elaborate on what you had to say about kings. Right. Um, it seems to me pretty clear that God was disappointed that Israel mm. uh, pushed for a king. Yes, yes. Uh, he was happier with judges. Yes. And if you go back and look, at what is said uh, in Genesis. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not sure I'd be inclined to say that God promised Abraham kings. Mm. I think he promised him offspring. Mm. And that the offspring, you know, if you're elaborating a little bit, will take the form of nations in the plural and kings in the plural because that is the way the world runs and I guess what I I cap off here is that king is a a metaphor Hmm. and seeing God as a king when what we know of earthly kings is what we know we may not be doing well to push too far with the notion of what we know of king as the kingship of God. Right. Right. I mean, I, I uh, just to refine. I mean, I can. What you were saying. Like I can. I'll, I'll just read Genesis seventeen six for you, just so that we know that it actually does say king. Right. Well, it does. I, I right. read it. So. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So, so it does explicitly say that. Um, 
And I think you're right. We have to be careful because of what we know of kings. Um, but God also reveals himself to us as father. And it's important that we don't kind of impute onto God our understanding of father and then make him out to be that uh, either. And so we probably shouldn't do that with king. But you're right. God was disappointed because... The, the trouble was that they weren't accepting his kingship in their life and his rule through the through the judges. So uh, it's a good it's a good warning. Um, I I wonder about I wonder about you know the use of the word king in Genesis seventeen six as just a as just a metaphor though. Uh, I'm not saying it's just a metaphor, but I, I think the really important thing is that it's in in the plural, yes, and that yeah. we look back to Abraham mm-hmm. as uh, the claim that we, not just the chosen people, the people of Israel, the Jews, are are encompassed. Yes, yes. No, and then and then ultimately, I mean, and this is, I think, what Psalm twenty-four is expressing, and. Uh, in the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, who then is, you know, he is the king. So, I think in part I'm, you know, I'm agreeing with you. Um, but, I, but I do want to recognize that, that back in Genesis 17, 6, it is, they're kings, yeah? Jason? That comment to, that comment to kingship in Israel, I mean, God also told said to Moses in the Mosaic Covenant that God is intended to make Israel a kingdom of priests. So it's not really about um, God promising a king or not. It's God promising a type of king mm. over the type of king people want. The people want at the time of Samuel after the debacle, even uh, especially after um, the debacle for the book of Judges, after Samson, uh, after sorry, Samson, right? Um, that they wanted a political king to lead um, Israel, as opposed to a priestly king that is um, interceding um, with God. That's interceding. Um, God promised a nation to uh, to Abraham, in which blessing flows through to the um, to the rest of the world, and to Moses, God um, promised a priestly kingdom. So it has a priestly role, a uh, priestly role between hmm. Gentiles and people and God. I'm having a hard time yeah, following you. Yeah, I must admit, I, I, Jason. I, I, I couldn't articulate it, but, yeah. it's, but it's a function of the king that is interceding versus a function of the king that is political and ruling, which is what the people are asking for. Hmm. I, I think that uh, well, sort of articulating it. I'm not sure. Sorry. Okay. Well, uh, it looks like you you get the final comment, and then we're, I, I'm getting a T sign from the back. T sign. No, I don't have a final comment. Uh, Actually, I'll make a comment. Sure. She who shall obey. I'm going to Israel uh, next week, and I mm. so looking forward to this weekend. I'm hoping, looking forward to ascending the holy hill and seeing the ancient.
names and all those things. But uh, I was thinking about this last night. It really struck me. God chose to place his people in a very harsh land, at least in the wilderness part of Israel is a very, very harsh, dry, and hot land. And they faced all kinds of enemies, uh, people that did not want to be pushed out of the land, and still don't. <laughs> and uh, they had to, and he said to them, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And he wanted to dwell with them, dwell like he does with us now, in us, and with us. And uh, he often, it spoke to me last night of, God was kind of telling me last night to trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. You know, if you trust me and follow me, you'll be blessed. And uh, that really struck me last night. And, and so this uh, study today really helped uh, a lot with uh, reinforcing a lot of these things about our our shepherd, our sovereign, our all those things that God is to us. I mean, I think... I'm glad that you're going to Israel. I've been there once as well. And just one of the blessings about going there is, um, you know, it's important to read the scriptures in, in context. It was, in a, it was in, a, in a place and a time, wasn't it? And, uh, and you know, if you don't know the geography, it will just kind of, it will help you when you're there. Uh, it's important to remember that the Lord is the king over all creation. And, uh, and his presence is with you here. Uh, as much as it will be there, uh, there too. So, 